The following audio is from Redemption Church. More information about our church can be found at www.redemptionchurchlacombe.org. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Take your copy of God's Word as we study it now. Luke chapter 2 and Matthew 1 are the two places I want you to turn to. We're so grateful for our children and our students helping us lead worship this morning. And if you are here just to see them today, thank you so much for being with us. My name is Byron, the pastor here, and we have been walking through in this Christmas season a series called The Songs of Christmas. We've been looking at some of the main songs that we sing at Christmas time as a way by which to understand the meaning behind them as well as to understand the Christmas narrative. And so if you hear us say the Christmas story, that word we're not meaning it's something that's made up, but the word by which to articulate the chronology of what happened in God's revelation to give us his son Jesus. We've looked at a couple of different songs leading up to today. Two weeks ago, we looked at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and we looked at how that the people of faith, the people of God, had a true, genuine longing for Emmanuel to come. And last week, we looked at O Little Town of Bethlehem and the fulfillment of that long historical longing. And it wasn't just 2,000 years of history longing for that and fulfillment. It wasn't just 4,000, but we looked at how God had a plan even in eternity past and through all of his working and his providence to orchestrate people and times and nations and kings to bring the very moment in the fullness of time to bring us Christ. And today what we're going to look at is, oh, come all you faithful and see not just the longing and not just fulfillment, but the invitation, the invitation to come to the Messiah. Now, next week will be Christmas Eve. We'll have two services in the morning time, two different services. In the morning time at 1030, we'll just have our regular worship service. We'll be looking at the Heart of the Herald Angels sing song. And we'll be looking at the proclamation that they made, the celebration that they had. And why were the angels saying those words? We will see that even in the text today. But we're going to really drive down in that text next week as to what was significant about the angels and what were they observing and what were they saying? And then Christmas Eve night, we'll look at We Three Kings and the presentation, what they brought to the king and how that also is a challenge to us and what we are bringing to the king as well. But today, oh come all you faithful, the invitation. It's amazing that even at a season where maybe people who aren't even believers or followers of Jesus fall right into the traditions of Christmas. The creed goes up, the lights go up. People will even express Merry Christmas, or maybe they're saying Happy Holidays. But we need to understand the whole purpose of Christ's coming was not just for people to observe him. It's not just to give us a Christmas narrative. But I want you to see that in this particular song, as well as in the text that we're looking at today, very clearly is that Christ had an invitation in his coming to all people. Now that may seem just normal for you to understand that it's for all people, but there is an understanding by some people that Christ just came for the Jewish people. And then later the Gentiles were able to come into the invitation to Christ. I propose to you this morning that Christ from the very beginning came not just for the Jewish people. He came for all people, all races, all nationalities, all peoples. And why does that matter to us? Because I want us to recognize if we are in Christ, there should be no pride within us that we are in the kingdom. But it's grace that's given to us that we actually can be in the kingdom. But also for us to see the same invitation that God gave us is the same invitation we should be extending to all 
people. Well, we're going to base this off of the first verse in O Come All You Faithful, the song that many of us have sung. You've heard our student ministry actually sing that today. And I'll read the lyrics to you. I'll put them on the screen. O come, all you faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Not come and just be enamored by him, but come and worship him. Come bow before him. Hear this invitation in this song, this song that was written so many years ago, was penned in the 18th century. It was sung to be pl- supposed to be played by an organ and then sung in a choir, but that the day when it came, the organ had been flooded and it was no longer useful. It simply was a song that got played on a guitar, simply sung by this simple invitation, and we still sing it today. It's an echo for us as we sing this song. It's a reminder as we're singing this, it's twofold. It's a reminder to us that God invited us and that we are invited to worship him, to adore him. And as we sing it, it's an invitation to those who are in the echoes and the surrounding of those who that we're singing. Oh, come, come and adore him. I want to propose to you that I think that many of us as believers have lost the luster We've lost the luster of God and we've lost the adoration that he so deserves. We just sing the songs, we're standing there, we're reading the Christmas story. And how many of us have lost the amazing truth that changed the world? My hope today is that to present to you this glorious picture and to remind us that we as believers should stop and be enamored once again. That we should stop and just be still and quiet for a moment. Just to sit before the greatness and the majesty of God. We see it in the shepherds. And I pray it will challenge us today. And that we will see God's invitation for all people. I want to give to you from this story in Luke chapter 2 as well as in Matthew chapter 1. I propose to you very clearly how that this picture of God reaching all people is very clear in the Christmas narrative. It's not just simply for the Jewish people, but I want us to see how God has had a plan for all time for all people, Jews and Gentiles. May we see it first in the story of the shepherds. Let's read this text. We'll read chapter 2, verses 1, and we'll go just for a few verses so we can see in regards to this particular text. We'll read verses 1 through verse 12. This is the story of Christ being born, the message to the shepherds from the angels. Verse 1. In those, decree, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to, be, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So I propose to you this morning, I want you to consider a few things from this Christmas narrative as well as from the Old Testament passages of Scripture Is it really indeed the fact that Christ came for all people? I want to show you very clearly that consider this announcement that the the shepherds are hearing from the angels. There's really two announcements that's being made here. One by a singular angel and then the second by this angelic host or army that come along right after him. The first one you see very clearly shepherds are there in the field and you see it in this first message that the angel shows up to them. It's right there in verse 10. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for who? All the people. Well, who is all the people who are here? Well, I just want to kind of set the stage for you just a moment. We see this text and we kind of picture various things in our mind. You probably kind of have some idea in regards to what's happening. It says the shepherds are keeping watch by their flock at nighttime. This is a time for predators. Now, what happens is the shepherds are grazing their, their, the sheep are grazing throughout the daytime. At nighttime, they're bringing them into some kind of protective way. Oftentimes, they would have like a rock area that they would bring them in. And the shepherds would take turns of resting. And a shepherd would lay in front of the door. They were the door. Hence, when Jesus in John's gospel, when he says, I am the door of the sheep, anyone who comes into me is safe. This is the background of what a shepherd did. He protected the sheep. So these shepherds are there keeping watch over their flock by night. It's not like they're just looking at them and saying, one, two, three, four, five. They're keeping protection over their sheep. So they're on guard. You know what it's like to kind of be on guard. You're ready to defend. And so if you're ready to defend and someone comes to attack you as a predator, you're going to be on defense and you're ready to go. Well, rather than charging out when they get interrupted, rather than charging out in courage and bravery, what do they do? They are struck with what? Fear. You're imagining it's quiet night, protecting your sheep, and all of a sudden, this amazing glory of the Lord shines bright. Now, I don't know how many of you have been able to see like the true stars on a dark night. We have what's called light pollution in our areas, meaning that there's so much city lights and street lights, it literally hinders us from seeing the splendor of the universe. That was one of the beauties of traveling out west with my family a year ago. We went to a couple of places, what was considered literally dark night places. And we actually could see the Milky Way with our naked eye because there was no light pollution. Now, can you imagine with me, you're a shepherd. I mean, they don't have LED lights then. They're in the fields. It's pitch black. And the glory of the Lord shines around them. Now, student ministry, you should have heard a little bit of this this Wednesday night with your student minister who taught you from this passage of Scripture. But let's picture yourself. You're expected to go to sleep, and all of a sudden you have a bright light that's shining around you. And it's not just the light that makes you be fearful, because it says it's the glory of who? Of the Lord that's shown around them. You just take a 
a narrative read through the Old Testament, and you will recognize that any time when someone comes into the presence of God, they're always struck with fear because they're in the presence of God. And that's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he is in the presence of God, he recognizes he has the whole vision. He, what does he say? Woe is me. You're simply amazed and you are caught with this glory of God and you recognize the brightness of God shines upon your sinfulness. It's actually what Jesus says in John chapter 3 is the world doesn't like the gospel because the light shines and the sin is exposed. But we can't come to salvation until the light shines on our darkness. And here we have the shepherds who hear this wonderful announcement, so they're struck with fear, and then they hear this great thing. That's why it says, don't fear. You see it again, and they're struck with fear, and the angel says, what's the first words to them? Fear not. Because they need to be able to hear what he's about to say. Fear not, for I bring you news of great joy that will be for All the people. God is showing up to the least likely people. These shepherds worked in obscurity. They worked in loneliness. They were out in the fields. They simply were people who were seen by society, kind of a lower class people by this time. Now, shepherds was not something, if you look in the Bible, there were people that God used who were shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus says he's the chief shepherd. And so now we have God announcing to the people who are kind of seen on the outskirts, they're not really associating with people in town, but God chooses to work in the upside-down ways to get his message out. So they're hearing this. Now, they're hearing this message. It's going to be for all the people. Now, these, these shepherds most likely have to be people who were of faith because as the message comes to them, The angel's not having to interpret for them the message. Notice the message. It's going to be, look at the text again. It's going to be great joy for all the people. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They don't stop and say, uh, time out, excuse me, can you explain to me what this means in the city of David? Uh, he's going to be a savior. He is Christ the Lord. What are, we, what are we talking about here? No, the shepherds hear this good news of great joy. What, what does this mean? Well, if he's going to be a savior, that means that he's going to be the one who's going to save them from their sins. It's going to be in the city of David, which means it's going to be where? In Bethlehem. He's going to be Christ, which means he's going to be the Messiah from the line of David. And he's going to be Lord, which means he is God. So the angel didn't have to tell them all those things, which mean that they're most likely people of faith devout, having the same longing as some of the other people who were looking for it. And when they get it, the angel doesn't say, hey, he's coming just for people just like you, the Jewish people. It's for all the people. Well, how do we know who this people is? How do we know that this people is not just for Jews? Because the context and all the scripture, certainly it began with the Jewish people. Because remember, even when Jesus, when he sent out his apostles, he told them to go to the house of Jerusalem first. And then they were to branch out. And it was after Jesus ascended. He says, go into all the where? Nations. Matthew chapter 28. But So we see all the people certainly coming to the Jews first. But 
how was this even understood? Well, if you look over to Luke chapter 2, verse 28, just eight days later, Simeon that we've looked at before, who is considered devout and righteous man, when he got to see Jesus, notice what he says there in verse 28 through 32. He took him up, meaning he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all, what? Peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. For those who were truly righteous individuals, what I want you to understand, they understood that the promise was not just for the Jewish people. They understood that the promise who was going to come is that Christ was going to be a king for all the peoples. Well, where in the world... Could Simeon even understood this particular promise? I'll give you one. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. This is what God said through the prophet Isaiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Remember what the tribes of Jacob eventually becomes Judah, and Judah becomes the tribe of Jesus. To raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the what? nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's 700 years before Christ is born. So we understand that when the angels come in, it's going to be for all of the people. We understand that this announcement is going to be so amazing for the shepherds to get this. What they've been longing for is the angels let them know, hey, it's going to be for all the people. Now, When you get rocked like that, remember, God has been silent for 400 years, and then an angel comes and speaks to Zechariah, speaks to Joseph, and then speaks to Mary, and then shows up to the shepherds. Now, you hear something completely brand new like that. Has anybody ever shared information with you? You have to just say, I just need to process that for a minute. Well, they don't have time to process it. They get this amazing announcement, and then instantly, instantaneously, we get to verse 13. What does the text say in verse 13? And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I just want to help you to get yourself in the setting. They just heard some amazing overwhelming news to rock their world that the Messiah that they were longing for has been born and he's close by. And it's the one that's coming to be the savior of the world and for all people. So if that's not enough that you need to chew on, then all of a sudden it's not just one angel that makes them all fall down. Now we have the angel army of God showing up. This had to be amazing. I know that a couple of us, the staff, and a few guys went down to the Southern Baptist Convention this past summer, and we were sitting in a room with 16,000 people singing. That's quite overwhelming. When you're hearing 16,000 people singing and lifting their hands and praising God, that's nothing in comparison to what this would have been like. I want you just to put yourself in this moment, and this, I think, is what we've lost. We've lost being enamored by the greatness of God. Jesus is coming. You don't have to be in a room of 16,000 people to be enamored with God. You could need to be enamored with God when it's just you and God. And so we're seeing here that they are hearing now this announcement. It's further expanded upon where they've heard that Jesus is coming for all people. And now what do the angels say? And on earth peace 
among those with whom he is pleased. Some of your translation may say, and goodwill to men. That's not really the best translation that's given from the language here. It has to be peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, who is the he? The he back in verse 14, it says, glory to who? God. So to be pleased, it has to be pleasing to who? To God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those whom he is pleased. Meaning that Christ is coming to bring peace. And if he's coming to bring peace, then that means we didn't have peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those whom he is pleased. Meaning you can have peace with God if he's pleased with you. Well, how can we please God? Not in our own rights. Not in our own efforts. This is why it's good news. This is why that I want you to understand is that God is making a way. Not man is making the way. Man can't make the way to be right with God. This is why it's Great news. This is why it's the invitation to come to him. Well, how do we get right with God? Man makes efforts. And some of you in this room, even today, are trying to please God on your own. You're trying to stack up good deeds. You're trying to do the right things. You're trying to have moral behavioral correction is what we call it. You can change and be a better moral person, but you can still be lost and go to hell. The only way that we're going to have peace with God is when we've come to the point of actually surrendering in place faith in Him. Let me give you this text. Hebrews eleven six makes it very clear for us. It's on the screen. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. And I have so much that I could tell you on this passage of Scripture, but I'll just give you another one. It's in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about how that we were not at peace with God. We were at enmity with God. And Jesus came so that he could be the one to bring peace to where we had this hostility towards God. He came to bring peace between us and God. Romans chapter 5 tells us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were sinners, we were also the enemies of God. And this is why the angels are saying to the shepherds, I have great news. And it's an invitation not just for you, but for all the peoples. The angels didn't say, oh, this is going to be peace among just the Jewish people. The invitation here by God from the angels saying for all the people, come. He's given the invitation. So what happens with these shepherds? Do they simply go back to the sheep and just kind of do a powwow? Man, that was awesome. No, what do they do? Look at verse 16. What do the shepherds do? And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now, I am the person that tries to put myself in the scene. And I can just imagine. Like you've got, I don't know how many shepherds are there. We know there's more than one because of verse 8 says the shepherds are out in the field. Let's imagine there's 10 of them, okay? Let's imagine they all have like 10 of them each. So they've got 100 sheep out there. It says they go in haste. Can you imagine like halfway? They're like, oh, what are we going to do with the sheep? Or either they're taking the sheep with them. We don't know what happens here. But shepherds have to lead. You know, they didn't drive sheep. They led sheep. In this, in this day, the sheep knew the shepherd's voice. That's why Jesus says, actually, in John 10, when he talks about the sheep hear my voice and they know me. So in all those shepherds, when they get together, each sheep knows the shepherd's voice. So he would simply call his sheep and the sheep that belonged to him would come. So it's possible they're bringing all the sheep. We don't know the scene, but I can just imagine this is like an amazing, like 
crazy, busy scene to get to the place where Jesus is born. Because they've heard, hey, this is what's going to be a sign for you. Now look, the angel didn't say, hey, here's the GPS, let me drop a pin for you. It simply says, now for those of you who don't understand mapping systems, that means like if you're trying to give somebody a place to go, you'll drop a pin for the address on Google Maps or iMaps or whatever it is that you're choosing to do. They don't have that invitation. All it said to them is, hey, what's going to be the sign for you? In verse 12, what's going to be your sign? You're going to find a baby. He's going to be in swaddling clothes, and he's lying where? Okay, that rules out a lot of places already, right? Like who's going to place a baby in a manger? A feeding trough. So that automatically knows when they go to the city of David, Bethlehem, don't go knocking on the, on the doors, so they got to go find the troughs. Now, we're not told if they're going from place to place to place to place. Some say, well, well they, they actually, we don't know, but we know they go in haste, and we can just kind of imagine if they're having to go to this feeding trough and this feeding trough, but when they get there, they know it's it because the baby's wrapped in swaddling cloths, and they would say, this is it! And so they're there, they run in haste. Now, here's something I want you to understand. Do you notice what the angel didn't tell them to do? The angel didn't tell them to go. Ponder that. The angels just simply said, I have great news for you. In this city of David, this is what's going to happen. There's a baby laying in swaddling clothes. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to go right now, leave your sheep behind and go. Are they told that? No. What makes them want to go? Because of the amazing news that they've just been told. We're talking about thousands of years of longing and fulfillment, and now it's here. And so they're going. Why? Because they want to see the one who's going to save not just them, but all people. So they're going with haste. Now what do they do? Do they go and just hide it for themselves? No, no, look at the text here. Verse 16, they go, they find... Moses, Mary and Joseph lying in the manger. And then verse 17, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Meaning they're going to tell Joseph and Mary. But we also know they're probably going and telling other people. How do we know that? Because verse 17, And then when they saw it, they made them known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds Hold them. But Mary treasured them in her heart, in verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Somewhere along the way, as they're going back to their place, they're telling everybody else what they heard because they've got good news to share. They don't just go back and say, man, this was just for us. They go back and tell, why? Why is it such good news for them? Because they've just heard that the king of all people has been born. What great news. Now I just have an application question from this one thing. From this one section right here. If you have received the invitation of Jesus to come, are we like the shepherds? Are we that enamored and excited the fact that the king has come and he can rescue all people? Do we really believe what... The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 61, the very text that Jesus takes the scroll and he says, the anointing one is upon me and I've come to bring peace to those who are at odds with God. I've come to rescue, to make the blind to see. I've come to set the captives free. Do we really believe that? Yes. Yes. 
You don't need to contemplate that question. If we truly believe these things, this is where I think what we need to do. I think what some of us need to do is we need to be like the shepherds and we need to kneel before the Savior once again. And we need to stop. Stop long enough to observe Him. To worship Him. How many of you sit and read your Bibles but have this thing open at the same time? Now, some of you are going to be, well, Pastor, I read my Bible on my phone. Okay, do you turn it on airplane mode so you can't be distracted by text messages and emails? All I'm simply saying is we are so distracted that I think that we need to be just like the shepherds once again and just go and worship Him, sit before Him. Why do you think God said in Psalm 46, 1, be still and know that I am God. I challenge you that if you are so busy that you haven't been able to stop and be still, I invite you to be still this year. You have a week before the Christmas day. But let's be still and worship Him. Well, I want to move on from this passage of Scripture because I want to zoom out now. We've seen here in Luke 2 very clearly that the angel announcement to the shepherds clearly that it's for all people. The, the shepherds are making that declaration. But let's zoom out a little bit and let's just back up and let's look at Jesus' genealogy. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Does Jesus' genealogy portray or show anything for us that actually proves this same, this same argument that I'm giving, that Jesus came for all people? Now, I know many of us, when you get to genealogies in the Bible, how many of you skip them? There's a bunch of liars in here this morning. Some of you skipped him and say he's a son of... Oh, and there were that many. We do have an author call in a little bit. You're welcome to come. I'm just kidding. This is not confession. You don't come to me to confess. But I will acknowledge, I think, oftentimes we get to genealogies and sometimes we miss maybe some gems that may be in those. I mean, why would Matthew chapter 1, the Gospel of Matthew, start with a genealogy? I mean, if you're writing this book, you're thinking, come on, Matthew. I mean, it's like starting the movie like the, what they used to do. You know, all the, the credits start at the beginning of the old movies. You know, like four minutes of credits. You're like, can you just get to the movie? You know, now you can actually kind of afford it. You know, or it's at the end now because they've kind of caught on. So Matthew's starting with the credits at the beginning of this book. But there's beauty that's here as to why. And I want to show you that just, this is just one nugget. This is not all the purpose of the genealogy. But I want to show you that even here in the genealogy, there's something that's being shown to us that Jesus came for all people. Now, let me just kind of show you some history. We're not going to walk through all this. This is 52 generations that's leading up from Abraham up to Jesus. So look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here is your chronology test. Who was born first, David or Abraham? Abraham. So why then would Matthew start with David then saying he's the son of Abraham? Because the Jews, because Matthew's writing predominantly to a Jewish audience, the Jews were looking for a king that was going to come from the line of who? David. So what Matthew is doing is he's wanting people to understand, hey, the one I'm about to tell you about comes from the line of David. But what he also was doing and saying, but by the way, he's also the son of 
Abraham. Now, why is Abraham so important for the Jewish people? Because according to the Jewish people, he was the father of the Jewish people. And so what happens here, Matthew is helping people to understand, hey, the guy that I'm talking about, the one that I'm going to get to at the end of this chapter, he's saying, is Jesus. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. But in the midst of these 52 generations, it's all men who's listed except for five women. Now you have to ask yourself the question. If 52 generations are mentioned, and all of those, why only mention five women? There has to be something significant. Let me propose to you four of these women. Look at verse 3. And Judah, who is Judah? Judah is the tribe of which Jesus is coming from. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by, say the word, Tamar. Now, who is Tamar? Well, let's keep going. Verse 5, we have Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And here is our fourth one. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What's her name? Her name is Bathsheba. I propose to you that what's significant, at least about three of these women, is that three of them we know for sure, looking at the Old Testament, they were Gentile women. Now, Tamar, we're not for sure, based upon the, the record that is for us in Genesis. Maybe she was a Canaanite, maybe she was a, a Dolomite, maybe she was Jewish. We don't really know clearly who, what her genealogy was in regards to her race. But very certainly, Rahab, we know, was a Canaanite. Now, who is this story? This, this story happens in Joshua chapter 6, if you want to go back and read this story. This is where Joshua is leading the people of Israel. They're actually supposed to go into the land of Canaan that God had promised them. And Jericho is the first city that they're supposed to be able to conquer. And there was a woman. Her name was Rahab. She also was a harlot that was there in that town. But yet she heard the story in regards to God and what was going to happen. And she was willing she was willing to be able to protect the spies who go in there. So she has faith in believing. In her faith in believing. So Joshua comes in he says, if you will be able to let us know who you are, we will rescue you, we'll save your family. And that's what happens. They go in and they conquer the city and Rahab and her family are protected because they were. she held true to her word by faith. She was believing in the promises of God. But what we're seeing here is it wasn't just a story. She then gets grafted in and married into the line of the one that Messiah is going to come from. And then we have verse 5, Ruth. Now Ruth, the whole story of Ruth, as we looked at that a little bit last week in regards to God working through orchestration, bringing about the promise of the Messiah. She is a Moabite. Remember, you got Ruth, her mother-in-law, who is Naomi. She goes into Moab. There's a famine, and while she's there, her husband dies, her two sons die, and what she's got left is two daughters-in-law. One stays in Moab. One goes back with her, and I'm summarizing because I talked about this a little bit last week. Boaz, who becomes the kinsman redeemer, buys her, marries her, and from that then she gets down to the line of, then you get Obed, then it gets Jesse, and Jesse fathers David, and David is the one who becomes the king and the promise, and she's a Moabite. And then we get David who's the king, and there's this moment where David becomes weak, he sees Uriah's wife, he wants her to be his own Wife, And so he does things that are inappropriate. He commits adultery with her. She's a Hittite. He has Uriah killed. 
Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And so then that child dies, but then David marries her. And then they give birth to a child, and his name is Solomon. Who becomes known as the wisest king in history. You say, why does that matter? Oh my gracious, why does that matter? What this shows us in this genealogical line is that God is a God of grace. We have people who are doing things that are not right, acting sinfully. But yet, in this moment of God's grace, you have these people who are Gentiles who are now in this line of Jesus. Now, if you know much about the Jewish people, they want to make certain that their race and their line is pure. But what we see here is God and his sovereignty is allowing these individuals to then be grafted into the line so that that Isaiah passage that we read, that says the Jewish people are to be the light to the nation so that he can have his gospel go to the end of the earth. You know why this matters to the audience that Matthew's writing to? Who were Jewish, prideful people thinking that they were the only ones that God was choosing? It's a way by which Matthew can say, uh, 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 don't forget. God also has Rahab, Ruth, and you also have Bathsheba. It's in this very moment. Look, this genealogy is not full of beautiful people who all acted in righteousness. I mean, you look at this list and you've got some kings that were actually pretty messed up. I mean, for one example, you got verse 10, you got a king named Manasseh. You know about Manasseh? Manasseh followed after Hezekiah. Hezekiah was an amazing godly king, but Manasseh was, he was a wicked, evil person. And so what happens, it goes back to the promise we talked about last week. God had a promise from Genesis chapter 3 that through the line of Judah, he was going to fulfill his word. And what Matthew is showing us is along the way, he's grafted in some of these Gentile people so that when Christ comes and the angel makes an announcement, I got good news for you. It's for all people. What I, want you, what I want you to see is Jesus didn't come just to save Jews and then later on we get a chance. Are you with me? What I want you to see from Genesis all the way to Jesus and from Jesus all the way, God's plan has always been to redeem all peoples, not just Jewish people. We need to understand the gospel and understand the picture of the glory of God's plan. And so we see very clearly... Here in these women. Well, just one chapter more. Let's consider another thing. We've considered in regards to the angel declaration. We've considered the genealogy of those women that's in Jesus' story. And some of you are saying, wait a minute. I thought you said there were five women. There was a fifth woman. Does anybody want to take a guess what the fifth woman was? Mary. And Mary's in the line of the Jewish line. And she's there to let us know that she's the one by which God chose to be the mother of Christ. Well, just one chapter more in chapter 2, which we will look at in great detail next Sunday night. The wise men. Let's consider the wise men from the east who came to worship Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Look at Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, I know we had breakfast this morning, so some of you are kind of lethargic, all right? 
come to worship him. But it's from the east. Now, why is that significant? Now, remember, part of what Matthew's whole purpose is in writing this gospel is to let the Jewish people know is that Jesus came not just for the Jews, but he came for the Gentiles as well. Now, why? This is actually an indictment. If this is a Pharisees who are hearing this, a Sadducees who's hearing this, this is an indictment for them because they've had two years by this point because, according to the story, Herod is going to have all the children two years and younger in Bethlehem killed because he's now is threatened that there's a king that is born. And so think about that with me. So for two years, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees should have known by now that the king is in Bethlehem, but they don't get it. So God, listen closely to me. God is going to get his worship. And so he's bringing wise men from the east to come and worship him. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit more next Sunday evening when we talk about we three kings. But I want you to understand something. Who who are these people and how in the world do they know? Now, some of you say, well, the Bible says they saw his star. Okay. But how do they know the star is related to the king of the Jews? Now, are you with me? So somehow they have to know. Now, there's a couple of different possibilities of who these wise men were. Some people will say that they're actually men from Persia, meaning the area by which the people of God had gone in exile. The Jewish people in 605 to 586 were exiled to Babylon, which eventually becomes controlled by Persia, which is also where Daniel went, if you remember, in exile. And Daniel was known as a person who could interpret visions and dreams. And he interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And he actually then, after he's able to interpret the dream, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 2 that the king saw how wise he was, that he put him in charge of all of the Wise men. And the wise men in Persia was a term that was used for a broad group of people who were considered magicians, astrologers. Now, it's possible. We don't know for certain. But there's one possibility. You'd say, well, well, that's a long time ago. Sure, certainly. Let me just kind of give you some of these possibilities. Daniel 6, or, or excuse me, Daniel's story is about 600 years before Jesus. If it is Daniel, and if these wise men come from him, that would mean, how would they know? Could it possibly have been that Daniel has told all these other wise men that they're under his charge, that he's telling them all the promises and the prophecies that's leading up to the one that's going to come? If that's the case, and you got these 600 years of men who were wise men, astrologers, so that when it happens, they're like, oh! Now, that's a possibility. The other possibility is that they're Midianites, which is connected all the way back to the book of Genesis, as well as Isaiah chapter 60 that talks about there's going to be some that was actually sent out from Abraham to the east. And then Isaiah talks about that there's going to be the ones from the east that's going to come and it's going to worship him. It's possibly Midianites as well. We just really don't know for sure. You say, what's the whole point of giving that conjecture? Here's what my point I want to say to you. Whether it's the Persians or whether it's the Midianites, God is bringing people from far away who were Gentiles to acknowledge and worship the king. And the Israelites are missing it. And he's right under their nose. I'm afraid that maybe some of us even in this room and some of us who sit in Christian churches are missing the king. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. Listen to me, children, teenagers, and adults. 
You say, well, I've heard the stories. Yeah, but do you know the story? Do you know the king of the story? This is what's the indictment of the gospel of Matthew to these Jewish people. They were missing it. And so God is bringing these people to come. And so when they get there, listen, this is what they don't do. They don't come and say, hey, can someone interpret the star for me? Can someone tell me what this means? What do they do when they show up? We've come to see the one who was born what? King of the Jews. Now you say, well, pastor, I thought you meant this was the king for all people. Yes, he's the king of all people. But they knew the king was coming from the Jewish line. Just because he's called the king of the Jews didn't mean he's the king only of the Jews. I said to you last week and the week before, I want you to understand, remember when Jesus is standing before Pilate in John chapter 19, and Pilate says, hey, they say you're the king of the Jews. Are you a king? And what is Jesus' response? He says, for this I was born. Jesus is born to be king. Look, Jesus can't just be in your back pocket. If you're going to follow him, surrender to him, worship him, and bow to him, he must be the king of your life. Honor him, serve him, bow to him. So we consider these wise men. We don't know for sure exactly who they are, but clearly it lets us know that God was orchestrating and getting people. And I would say the same today. You say, how does that apply even today? Jesus says in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, he says these words. The Lord is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is looking as people gather around the world in buildings. There's a lot of people who gather in buildings who aren't worshipers. There's a lot of people who are getting up in the, tomorrow morning and reading their Bible. They're not worshipers. God is looking for people who authentically are genuinely worshiping him in spirit and in truth. God is looking. He had Gentiles from the east come. And he's looking today in 2023 because when Jesus comes on the white horse, he's going to save those who are looking for him. Well, let's back up in history. Jesus came, and it's clear from the angel declaration. It's clear in regards to the women that's in the genealogy. It's clear that Jesus came for all people here in regards to these wise men. But let's back up, and let's go back a little farther. Certainly in Matthew 1, we said this genealogy is connected to Abraham. Well, let's look at the promise that was given to Abraham. Let's back up 2,000 years, and let's consider the promise that was given to Abraham. Did God say to Abraham, it's only going to be for him, let me just kind of set the stage for you. Abraham, as you remember, Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is living in the land of what's called Ur, of the Chaldeans. It's known as the land of Babylon. He's in a land, not worshiping, not worshiping God. And God calls Abraham, reaches out to Abraham, and says, Abraham, leave. Leave your father's land. And go to this land. Abraham has had an encounter with God. God reached out to Abraham. And so Abraham steps out in obedience, leaving behind what was comfortable, convenient, familiar, and he leaves. And it's in Genesis chapter 12 where God then says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. It's in Genesis chapter 12 verses 3. It says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the where? Earth shall be blessed. Now, last week, we looked at that same verse and we looked at the in you. The in you was referring to Jesus. And so now, 
2,000 years before this moment where Matthew writes this genealogy, we go back to Abraham and we make it very clear that God is saying it's not just going to be just for the Jewish people. He's saying, through you, I'm going to be a blessing to all of the people of the earth. Well, was that understood in the New Testament? Absolutely. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul quotes this very text. And notice what he says about the Gentiles. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify who? The Gentiles, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul says, Paul says, that simple phrase, In you shall all the nations be blessed, was the gospel. Now, we say the gospel is Jesus came, he was born, he died, he rose again, he sat at the right hand of the throne of God. If people repent and believe, they can be saved. Paul says this simple phrase, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says that's the gospel. That's all Abraham had. He believed it and it was given righteous to him because in that phrase was packed full of truth that Christ was coming and he was going to save people and it was going to save the world. That's why in John chapter 4, after Jesus has this encounter with a Samaritan woman, she goes to the town and she tells the people and the people say, we didn't believe it because of you, but now that we see him, we know that he's the savior of the world. And that's phenomenal because the Samaritans were considered outcasts by the Jewish people. Hear the goodness of God in all of this church. God didn't come to save fixed, perfect people. He came to rescue us because if we think we're all good, then we really have a problem. We are not good, not righteous, messed up individuals that God came to redeem us. And the sooner that we get the picture of that, the sooner that we realize we need rescuing. And that's who He came for. That's why... That's why the angel said, hey, name him Jesus, because he's going to come and save people from their sins. They didn't say, name him a beautician, just kind of make him look better. These people are a mess. How many acknowledge you were a mess? And you needed redeeming, and you needed fixing, you needed rescuing. This is why Jesus came. This is what I want you to just be enamored with again this morning is don't just simply be boastful and proud and say, man, God saved me. I don't really have a testimony. Are you kidding me? We were damned and had the wrath of God upon us, and Christ came to interrupt that, that damnation to rescue us, to save us. So when we celebrate Christmas, we're saying, God, thank you that you sent the rescue mission for me. Well, you have to consider, well, if God made that promise to Abraham, what about all the people prior to Abraham? Abraham is 2,000 years before Jesus, but what about the 2,000 years of people before him? I propose to you. Listen, this is where I want you to, to see this. Man, I hope you see that. I hope your mind goes... Abraham becomes the father of the Jewish nation. But before there was a Jewish nation, God was still, still looking for people to worship Him, believe in Him. So before there was a Jewish nation, there were people that were just all tribes and people and scattered abroad. And these people, you go to Hebrews chapter 11, 
And when the author of Hebrews makes a list of people who had authentic, genuine faith, they're in there. This is prior to a Jewish nation. So when the angel comes, when the angel comes and says, I got great news. It's for all the people, all of the genealogies, all of the Gentiles, all the people. You go to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, when they sinned, remember what they try to cover themselves with? Fig leaves, meaning that's not enough because what does God have to do? God has to make a sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And it says he makes them garments of skin, which means that he's taken an animal that he has created that was perfect and without sin and it had no blemish in it. And he sacrifices it to cover them so that their sin is covered. It's the first picture of sacrifice to cover sin. And so you say, how do we know that Adam and Eve were saved as a result of that? Because they have to be willing to say, you're right, God, my fig leaves aren't enough. I need your covering to cover my sin. They had to have faith to believe it. And then their sons, Cain and Abel, offered different sacrifices to God. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, and Cain's was not acceptable, but Abel's, it says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his sacrifice. Don't miss it. It says the Lord had regard for him and his sacrifice, meaning God saw in him a man of righteousness. Enoch, Genesis 5, 22, one of the coolest stories in the Bible, it says he walked with God and he wasn't. He walked with God and then he was not. For those of you who haven't read that story, go back and read it. Genesis chapter 5. And this, again, it's in a list of genealogies. Of this guy got this guy, this guy begot this guy, this guy begot this guy, this guy begot this guy. Enoch, what was God? And he was not. And this guy got this guy. And you're like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> Meaning, he walked with God. He was righteous. And the Bible says that the Lord just took him. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? I'm walking with God. <laughs> Where's Byron? I don't know. That'd be a cool way to go, right? Except everybody's trying to search for you, trying to figure out where you are. But it's a picture of how that this was a man, and it's in a list of a time when people were not walking with God. In Genesis chapter 6, you got Noah. Noah's not a perfect dude either. But the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. What's my point? These were people who before Abraham, before Israel becomes a nation, What I'm trying to say to you is this. God has always had one plan. And that was to redeem all peoples. And he chose the Jewish people, according to Isaiah's words that we read earlier, simply to be a light to the ends of the earth. And where we get it warped in our minds is when we get to the New Testament, we think, oh, they rejected it, so then the gospel became available to the Gentiles. That's not the point. The point is the Jews are supposed to carry the torch and they failed at doing that. And so God then allowed us as Gentiles to be the ones who run with the torch. That's why Jesus says, go into all the world, go into all the nations, proclaiming the gospel, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Why? Because we want to say the exact same thing that the angel said. This is good news for all peoples. So I ask you this question. As a believer, are you enamored with the greatness and the majesty and the goodness of God to let you be included in his kingdom? 
Maybe you are saved, but maybe you've lost the wonder, the splendor, or the awe. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that says, Here I am to worship. And that might need to be your confession. Lord, I'm here to worship you. And in singing that song, it might be that in your own confession, you're saying in your mind, Lord, I've actually focused my attention on lots of other things besides you. And so once again, God, I'm saying, here am I. I want to worship you. Maybe you just need to confess and say, God, I've allowed distractions to be my focus. Rather than being enamored with the greatness of God that I have been redeemed by you. My second challenge is this. Are we actually like the shepherds that are so enamored that we want to go tell? Actually, I think the shepherds are a beautiful picture of what we want our mission of our church to be. If we will truly delight in God first, then we will want to declare his good name to the world. And I believe the shepherds were delighting in the God who was in front of them. And so they didn't have to be persuaded to say, go tell somebody. The fact that they got to see it and they experience it, they want to declare the goodness of God. And I think that's where we need to get. It's to delight in him genuinely so that we can declare his goodness. But maybe some of you here in this room and some of you who are watching online haven't received the invitation yet. You've heard the invitation, come to Jesus, but you've not actually responded to Jesus. Maybe you need to take that step today just like Kevin did. Where he had had lots of religious teachings. He had truths in his minds, but there had to come a point where he actually surrendered to Christ as king. Some of that might need to be you today, whether you're a child or an adult. And you say, I I want Christ to be my king. I've bowed to other things, but today I want to make Christ the king of my life. Then come to him, repent of your sins, believe that he is the son of God, believe that he died and rose again, acknowledge that he's the savior of the world, and follow him and he will save your soul. But some of you immediately, as I say those things, are going to hear the enemy lie to you. You're going to hear the enemy say to you, you're not good enough. And I would say to you, look at Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. Look at the people that God has redeemed. He didn't come for the perfect. Because if he came for the perfect, he wouldn't have come at all. But he came for us. And I'm here to tell you, God, in his grace, has enough grace to cover your sin. To save you. So some of you today might simply need to recognize, I need you, God, and I invite you to come. Whatever it is that God has said to you today, hear the invitation. Oh, come, all you faithful. Come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your invitation through your son, Jesus, for all peoples. For us. And now in this moment, God, I pray for those of us in this room who may not be enamored with you like we once were. Maybe we're too distracted. Maybe we're too focused on other things. But today, God, you're speaking to the hearts of some in this room and those who are watching today who have lost being amazed at you and by you. So God, I pray that as we will sing in a moment that this song would be a prayer of confession 
here we are to worship you. Lord, there may be some in this room who, who have been redeemed, but not being like the shepherds, not declaring that good news. They can't even think of the last time they've told somebody about you. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a true delight in you that would cause us to want to tell all peoples about you. But God, there may be some in this room and some who are listening online who may acknowledge that they've heard the stories, they've listened to the stories, but they have not surrendered themselves. And maybe they have thought that they aren't worthy enough. God, thank you that you died for us when we were unworthy. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's any today that need to surrender to you, that they would do so. So now, God, in this moment of response time, just pray you'd move. You'd move on our hearts and that we'd be obedient to you. And that as we sing this song, that this would be a song of our prayer to you. Here we are to worship you. Be magnified in this time of response, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we stand and as we will sing, there'll be people here to receive you for parts of prayer team. You come if you need to come. Make an altar out of your chair if you need to. Make an altar out of this stage. Or you can come to us and pray. We're here for you.